welcome to Media Democracy. It's a podcast about the media, politics, and the politics of the media. My name is Dan Hind, and I am joined as ever by my co-host Tom Mills. Hello, everybody. That's probably the smoothest intro we've ever done. Yeah. Um, this week, it's just Tom and I. We're going back to our roots. The dream this, team. This is Media Democracy classic. Um, and we're going to talk, Tom, about three things, basically, to start with. Possibly only three things, uh, which have been going on in the Media Democracy Cosmoverse. Yeah. Um, firstly, um, uh, a couple weeks ago I was on the um, Ed Miliband's podcast, Reasons to be Cheerful. Um, secondly, you got involved in a, um, what I can only describe as an online spat. Is that, is that a fair characterization? <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't know what to call it, really. It, it's like, a sort uh, of a, a baffling, conversation. A baffling, a baffling encounter with, um, uh, I would say friend of the show, but that's not true, but sort of object of mutual fascination, David Aronovich. Yeah. I mean, he, he lurks behind a paywall now. It was probably more familiar to me, like about five years ago, or whenever it was, uh, you know, before before Murdoch built his uh, his, his fortress of <laughs> his citadel of comment. Um, yeah. Yes. Um, but he, anyway, so he, he's there doing whatever he's he's doing, but he's also just fucking about on Twitter. And so we're going to chat about um, we're going to chat about David, aren't we? And then which the actually which bit. maybe gives us a chance to talk a bit about the broader culture of. Journalists losing their minds on Twitter. Um, yeah, which we're going to do. We, which, by the way, we're going to do a proper show on um, coming to you soon. That's an exclusive. Um, we're going to do a show on journalists losing their mind on Twitter, or just journalists on Twitter. They could be doing other things as well. Um, it's probably you know we could even talk about um, the, the paywall and the Times and the political economy of the press. Who knows where the conversation? Well, let's face it. If it's you and me, <laughs> and we're involved in it, I think that's going to it's going to feature. Um, but the third thing we're going to talk about is Poppygate. Yeah, that's right. So, like, a, a, w- normally we like to pick up controversies about a week after they've taken place. But we're sort of, we're not in the midst of this, are we? But it's it's sort of, we're at, like, the tail end. I was going to say, as, well, we, as we record, if, yeah. if, Pop, if, if Poppygate was, was the First World War, we're sort of probably at the Second Battle of Ypres. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I don't actually understand that reference. What, what, We're what about if, that if you imagine it's like if 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 the the Poppygate scandal began in is that's nineteen fourteen. No, I get the metaphor. I just mean like when was the? I, um, I think it's when, like the winter of nineteen seventeen. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're, we're near the very end. Of, we're, we're approaching the armistice. I think so. I think there's probably another year, year of hard fighting to get. And, so, <laughs> and who are the Germans in this analogy? Is that Aaron Bastani? I'm not going to. I'm not going to venture an opinion on that. Okay. Um, so, to be clear, um, to to the listeners, we're to, we're talking about um, Aaron Bastani making some sort of reference to the Royal British Legion, um, saying that they were racist, but also making comments about their um, resources and the number of homeless veterans are, are in uh, in the UK. And there was this sort of furious reaction um, from, well, the Sun and the usual quarters, but also from the Labour right and, and centrist Twitter, actually, which has been a bit lively today for me. If, um, 
it's some guy like uh, one of their leaders. Is it, is it Kevin Maguire or am I talking about someone who's on the left? Like one of them who's like, I think used to be in the mirror or something, um, quote tweeted me earlier. So like I've just had these sort of um, angry centrists sort of popping up in my mentions for for most of the day. Anyway, um, that's the third thing we're going to talk so about. That's, so that's number three. Let's, um, let's, let's go back. So chronologically speaking, yeah. that we're, in the, we're in the absolute, you know, um, well, I can't remember what, what, which battle we were in, but I, I think we're pretty much in the eye of the storm or maybe the tail end. Who knows how that's going to play out? Um, as far as I know, Aaron Bastani hasn't left the Labour Party, so who knows what will happen. But um, we want to start going back three weeks? Yeah, so back into the mists of time. Like, Am I right in saying we have actually mentioned this on the show? We then? have, but the thing is, I didn't, I, when I when I mentioned it, I hadn't actually listened to it. And this no, sort, but you were there yourself using your own words, so you, you knew about part of it. I knew that I'd been on it. Yeah. And I knew that it had been released, but what I didn't know was like, how they, how they contextualised what I said. So, what what kind of what does my head in slightly about this is that they asked they they interviewed like they got in touch with me, said they wanted to do some like some background research. They interviewed me for like an hour, said, "Well, would be great if you come on the show." I then There's sort reasons of, to be cheerful in case everyone's like lost the uh, will the, to, uh, will uh, to live, right? <laughs> but, <laughs> I'm just having I'm so, I'm using I'm taking I'm using my platform. To speak yeah. my mind, because this really no, grinds. I don't my... want to stop you. I, I'm, I'm, I'm merely here to provide the sort of context. To no, and I appreciate um, you being here for me. I appreciate yeah. you being like so holding Ed, my. So, so, so just so everyone knows, this is Ed Miliband's podcast, and he does it with like another person who's called Jeff is... Lloyd, by the way. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Um, who I just, I just, I didn't know who he was, but anyway, he's called Jeff Lloyd. So they, yeah. they gave me on this show, and it's called Reasons to be Cheerful. It's supposed to be like positive suggestions for political change, like ways that you, okay. we can make the world less fucking awful, right? And they asked me all to talk about media reform and like how, how we might make the media better. And I go on there, and I basically talk about communicative equality. It's something that regular listeners of the show will be familiar with, right? I set out the, the idea that if you're going to subsidize the media with public money, then the public should be active agents in how that money is spent, Right. I like it's a, it's an argument I've been making for the best part of ten years to like blank incomprehension on the face of every fucking liberal I ever come across. Anyway, but I I'm in the context where this is called reasons to be cheerful. This is supposed to be a chance to like make reform proposals in a, in a in a an environment where they can be at least taken like in, held in a positive light. Anyway, I listen to the podcast immediately after I'm I'm recorded my recording plays. This guy who presents it with Miliband turns around and goes, yeah, well, that will never happen. That's really unrealistic. And I'm just like, what the fuck are you doing having me on the show if you think it's such a bad fucking idea? What? Like, anyway, so fuck you and the horse you rode in on. You know, I'm, I'm, <laughs> so, I'm, I'm fucking okay, so bored of talking to... Annoyed. I'm just, so bored of talking to centrist fucking dickheads. Like, yeah, no, I know. Well, that, that, that's why we have this special uh, <laughs> media democracy platform, so you don't have to do that. Well, right. Yeah, I mean, it does seem a bit weird to have somebody on your podcast and then sort of say, well, that was essentially a waste of time. That's like, um, right, exactly. I mean, I like you don't have to agree. I'm not saying you have to agree with me, but why the fuck have me on your show if you don't yeah, well, think I, I, it's... Don't, I don't think they will again, then. Well, quite. I'm sure it's fucking shit <laughs> not going on it again. Um... And um, will be neither invited nor would an invitation be accepted. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think, yeah, I mean, I, I, I listened to it um, 
yeah, a lot sooner than you did. Um, well, I suppose it would really because I guess you were on it. But I, I did think they were very, I did think they were very dismissive, um, or at least um, Ed Miliband's co-presenter particularly was very dismissive, which seems like a little bit strange because, as you say, like the the idea, as I understand the concept of the show, it's supposed to be about um, yeah, sort of big ideas and sort of you know. Sort of pushing the envelope. Am I am I mixing metaphors there? I don't know. Um, but yeah, it's supposed to be about like um, think outside the box. Why am I just starting so many? <laughs> I really don't know. It's like <laughs> you're auditioning to be on a centrist podcast. No, I know. But I it's know. like I just you know I just I don't know. I, like it is it is crazy making like trying to like present ideas to people when they're when they're unfamiliar with them. You know, yeah. when, when people haven't, just, like, been... I just kind of think, I kind of think with this stuff, though, that, you know, if, if, you, if you're able to present the idea, like, even if even if the, the hosts are a bit condescending afterwards, like, at least, you know, you got the idea out on the platform. And, and, may, and I appreciate that is, that is maddening. But, like, I, I think in terms of, like, any sort of media engagement, you, ha- you have to kind of deal with this. And, yeah. like, particularly... You know, if you're going to appear on something like the BBC, yeah. then of course they're never going to let you give you the time or the opportunity to present new ideas. And of course, if they do do that, if they allow you and give you the space, then it's almost seen to be like the responsible thing to do to make some sort of like faintly condescending comment afterwards. I, ju- I just think that that's kind of seen as being responsible kind of um, hosting or like reporting. Right, it, it's right. just part of that. It's part of that kind of um, political culture, I think. But you're right. It's very, it's very strange for a podcast because, like, it's not. If 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 you're being asked to like appear on television or like you know in the Guardian, I mean, I suppose to some extent this is waning, but like you know, it is giving you a very significant platform, isn't it? But I, I suppose Miliband's podcast must have a pretty big platform. I dare say they've probably got more listeners than us. Well, it's, 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 these things are very hard to tell. Um, no, yeah, it's impossible to, it's impossible it's impossible to, quantify, to quantify which is the most successful podcast. That's one of the things about the yes. digital era is you just, you just can't quantify anything. You, can't, um, measure, you it, can't measure anything you, accurately. You can't measure because, anything I mean, online. there's so many different ways you can cut the data and um, <laughs> yeah. we, we all know that the numbers can lie so because there's quantity uh, but there's also quality but i suppose yeah, the point but, is as um, well if you but, are listening um dan i'm afraid will not have you on but i would be happily to do a solo show um with you talking about your big ideas but not the other one we don't want him on no i'm listen i i don't i don't particularly want to go to war with Ed Miliband. like I've got a sneaking regard for the guy, but I have to say, like the 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 etiquette of media is that if you have a, if you get a chance to go on a big platform, and they do something like that, you just have to suck it up. And I just think, yeah. fuck that, you know, like that. I'm just I'm treating them. I'm treating that that podcast with the same respect they treated me, basically, which is fucking none. Yeah, know? they didn't swear about you then. Yeah, well, fuck them. I've got my, you know. I'm not. I don't have to be. I don't have to be in the middle of the road. Anyway, so that's that's just my little the get that off my chest thing. Um, yeah. But do check it. Do check out reasons to be cheerful. It's a podcast. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, the final Dan Hyde endorsement. Uh, <laughs> actually, they they have had some good people on as well. I mean, not just you. They like, have. They, they they've had, had, um, like, they've had like they've given a platform to lots of people. But yeah. that, and that's kind of why I assumed that when they when they did that, they were like, oh. 
well, they're, you know, they're willing to sort of entertain this idea, but then they just turned around and went, ah, actually, that's that's just... Not... And it was like, this is unrealistic because of some f- story that I'm telling myself about what people are capable of doing, right? Mm. And it's like, there's you've got zero evidence for this claim. They had uh, they had Alan Rusbridge uh, on the same episode, didn't they? Yeah, they did. Yeah. We should do a show on Alan, actually. Do you think... You don't think it's it would be interesting? I don't know. I you know it's one of these things where I don't I don't really I don't. No, know. actually, forget that. We, we we've been we've been discussing doing one on Jonathan Friedland um, instead. We should do him before we do Alan. Well, Friedland is is, is a, in a way a, a better kind of we can, it's it's a, a quantity that we can get to know much better in the sense that he's a comment journalist, right? So we can actually look at a body of work. But Alan's written a book. Alan has written a book. I suppose we could read that book. We could do, yeah. Um, that would be a pretty bold move in the modern era to read a whole book. <laughs> anyway, yeah, well, you're, you're a publisher. I imagine that that comes with a job. Well, I'm, a, I'm, an, I'm, I'm an academic. An academic's well known for reading. I'm books, an elder. So I'm an elder. It's not. Publisher. It's not beyond our powers. It's not. It's not. It's not unprecedented. I'm not saying that. Um, no. But that brings us on to the second. I guess, well, even a much, in a sense, a much more consequential brush with the mainstream, which is your encounter with um, David Dave Aronovich. On... No, I think your brush with the mainstream is more consequential. Oh, no, because yours, well, you ended up, didn't you end up being quoted in a Times column? The um, establishment's paper record. The, is the a... Thunderer, they call it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which, like, just as a quick kind of callback to... The episode that we did with Jack on um, Nick Robinson's um, terrible podcast. Yeah. Um, like, in his kind of post-match conversation with um, Paris Lees, which some of which was, was included in the podcast, he's, like, he, she was criticising him for his line of questioning. He said, well, look, this is, all, this is all going on in the Times. I can't ignore such an important and influential paper, right? It's yeah. really extraordinary like insight into the idea that oh well whatever the times blathers on about is is important it's like yeah where the, how the where the fuck why does like this is just some subsidized fucking bullshit factory that Murdoch runs at a loss yeah precisely I mean, to it, get his fucking thought worms but didn't Murdoch basically buy it but Murdoch bought it because it was something that couldn't be ignored didn't I, he that I was think the whole he, point of the I times. think he I think he bought, I think the he had like he was making a lot of money with the Sun already, yeah. And the the Times was losing massive amounts of money. I don't think it started to sort of become a, a chronic loss maker until quite a long after long time after the move to Wapping. I think the Sunday Times was always quite quite lucrative. The Times, I think, has sort of dipped into the red more or less permanently. I think maybe from the late nineties onwards, something like that. So he's, he's ploughed huge amounts of money into it. Um, I don't think he could have, he would have been able to afford to run it at a loss from the outset. Mm. But but you're right. Like the like the huge kind of significance of it was this 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 sense that whoever writes for the Times has a, has a right to the attention of of certainly the rest of the media establishment. Yeah, um, and in a way, it's kind of anachronistic because like. Who the fuck reads the Times apart from Nick Robinson? You know what I mean? Like, if you're a major figure in corporate in the corporate world, you don't read the Times. You read the FT. It's ridiculous. 
Yeah, I mean, well, they've got good numbers, but I mean, I think, you know, it's the upper middle classes who, who read it generally, isn't it? I mean, I I, I think the you know, the Sunday Times, like the other Sunday papers, is probably, you know, there's, there's a lot of people who sit down on the afternoon still and, you know, retired people or people in their 50s and, you know, snuggle down with their copy of the, of the Sunday Times. Hey, I don't think, listen, don't, don't knock people in their 50s, mate. I'm too close to my 50s to, to give them a hard time. I'm not knocking them. They're a lot dynamic saying, and exciting like nobody, people in the 50s. Nobody <laughs> at the age of 49 <laughs> has ever done that. It's, it's not a question of right or wrong. It's just, you know, it's a social fact. No, you're right. Um, I, don't, I'm, I don't know why I'm getting twitchy. Um, <laughs> well, you're getting twitchy because you're getting close. <laughs> <laughs> This will be you in, uh, in a couple of years. Staring um, so, dumbly yes. at the Times. Yeah, um, sat down on a, on a uh, Sunday morning with your Sunday Times being like, oh, yeah. the bloody uh, university students with their political correctness. Yeah, they, yeah, I mean, so, yeah, they, this is sort of a silly thing, right? So, so talk us through it, Tom. Try not to use any bad language, you know. Yeah, no, I know. You probably used up our swear quota for uh, the uh, the entire episode. (laughs) What it was, was like, this seems like a long time ago now, but um, the, so Aronovich was participating in this this debate with Matthew Goodwin, who's an an academic who is a political scientist who researches the um, sort of populist right, for want of a better phrase, you know, not the far right, but the sort of the UKIPers and, you know, um, sort of anti-immigrant kind of sentiment and that sort of thing. Um, they are kind of the far right, though, aren't they? I mean, there's a sidebar. I mean, there's a lot of overlap between the UKIP and like the old National Front lot, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. It, 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 there, of course, there is at like the party level, but I think he's kind of interested in the sort of um, generic kind of um, right-wing anti-immigrant sort of sentiment. No, he doesn't. He doesn't seem to be interested in the actual political parties. He's interested in the sort of political demographics behind UKIP support and the conservative right support, and you know the kind of socially conservative Labour voters, that kind of thing. That yeah, seems to be yeah. His sort of obsession. And I mean, he, he blocked me on Twitter later, so I don't know what's been going on with him lately. I, I think he followed me at one stage. I'm not really sure for what reason he would have done that. Um, well, just out of a love of knowledge, I would have thought. Yeah, no, that's it, because he's very much... In, he's he's a scientist, if nothing else. Um, he's, so, he's, anyway, he he's sort of... I don't know quite what he's doing. He's best known now as somebody who ate his book on television. People will remember that. So that he said something about Labour wouldn't poll above, like, um, whatever it was, like... 37% or 38% or something. Yeah, 38%, I think. And if if it did, then he would eat his book. So then he went and got invited by some entrepreneurial um, booker on Sky News to come on air and, and eat his book, which was at the sort of you know, the height of um, Corbynite enthusiasm after the uh, election last year. And anyway, so he, uh, he he was participating in this kind of debate. And I think the phrase that they used was, is um, ethnic diversity a threat to the West? Which as a lot of people pointed out was like, you know, pretty fascist as a, a sentiment. And was saying that people shouldn't really be participating in these kind of debates because the whole sort of, assumptions that were hardwired into them were, you know, giving sort of encouragement to certain types of assumptions about immigration and, you know, whatever. So there was the usual sort of pushback of which I was part. 
And Aronovich was participating in this debate, but as somebody who said he was sort of opposing the motion, I'm not really as... You'll probably be more familiar with how these the debate... I don't even know if it was a formal debate, to be honest. Um, so anyway, there was a bunch of them, and it was sort of circulating on Twitter. So what I did was I, I took the, the image, and then I replaced the, um, the title with Our Dinner Party Racist, A Threat to Democracy. Which, which, is, a very, which is a really pressing question, an important question. And it's not one that's got addressed, you know, because people have legitimate concerns about this. I, I, have, I, have I know I have legitimate very legitimate concerns. And they're the ones that you share, I know, and mm. probably a lot of our listeners share. So I was just sort of posing that question and putting it out there. <laughs> and then, <laughs> <laughs> Which I would say is an exercise in free speech as well, right? I mean, that's, that's what, well, well, that's <laughs> what a dynamic is, marketplace of ideas is all about, isn't it? So, so... Depends on context. Like David David Aronovich, um, he he's kind of one of these. He's like a former Stalinist, isn't he? Uh, and kind of um, is say so he was he was was it him or who was part of that? I should um, clarify by for any legal eagles listening. Tom said a former Stalinist, not a form of Stalinist. Yeah. <laughs> Wasn't he part of that um, university challenge team, or was that some, another one of these? He was. That's right. Yeah. He was. He so was, he, anyway, he's one of these sort of hardcore Marxists, you know, um, and Eurocommunist types in the nineteen eighties, I think. And and so he was part of that sort of section of the left that during the nineteen eighties moved from the Communist Party of Great Great Britain through these sort of Eurocommunist kind of um, soft left sort of um, trajectories. And into various sorts of, you know, good careers, basically, um, which, which set them on a certain trajectory. And he went into print journalism. And then it kind of became a thing, I think, um, through his support for the yeah. Iraq war. So he, a bit like Nick Cohen, he was one of these people who, who, who found that the left has sort of lost its way by opposing um, the American... Um, invasion of Iraq, basically, and then just sort of goes through all kinds of, um, yeah, bizarre sort of uh, intellectual Olympics, trying to justify their original position. Um, when did he end up at the Times? I'm not really sure. Well, he was a Guardian columnist for a while. Yeah, um, well, like they all were, aren't they? Before I think they um, before that he was like, was he at London Weekend Television or something with Mandelson? I mean, it's... Mandelson. He was. He's also a sort of. Uh, um, former communist type, isn't he? He was a, in the young communist. Uh... Yeah, I think I think that's right. I think I mean there is an interesting question, isn't there, about whether a youth in these sorts of clandestine or pseudo revolutionary groups um, was a useful training in the kind of sort of mutual back scratching and networking and backstabbing that that helps you get ahead in the media. Um, I think definitely. I, I think some of the training in these groups. Particularly if you have, you know, a sort of a party line that you're encouraged to follow, you know, because like the the kind of party, you know, like the Communist Party of Great Britain, but also I think to an extent some of the uh, Leninist groups, you know, they're, they're very weird organisations because on the one hand you have a particular line that you need to pursue, but on the other hand there's a lot more sort of intellectual than you would get normally in British public life. So I think it equips you for a couple of things. Like one is like towing a, towing a line and the other is, you know, 
um, all of the kind of um, polemical tricks that you anyway get through your sort of public school and education and good universities and the rest of it, but a real sort of an intellectual energy and probably an understanding of history and most of all understanding of the left that you just don't get if you haven't had that kind of background and training. So I think like a lot of these reactionaries, you know, these sort of reactionary turncoats like Aronovich are quite, you know, the, that that's kind of what makes them formidable. You know, they're not, they're not just sort of, you know, Jeremy Clarkson type um, no, reactionaries. They're like not they're, winging they, they are, no, there is, they, they are able to... Um, you know, debate and articulate, and they and and they broadly understand where the left's coming from. Um, I they mean, just... that, that word polemical is really interesting as well, isn't it? In that, like, people laugh at how Aronovich turns up almost every day on Twitter and gets his ass handed to him. <laughs> but yeah. like, and so on some level, he clearly doesn't care. Like, no, I think know. a lot of people without that training, like, would be really bruised by being. Like utterly humiliated in an argument, like relentlessly. But I think that they instrumentalize ideas. They learn to sort of, they the ideas are just sort of stuff they play with. Um, yeah, no, I think that's right. And they, it's not, you know, they are ultimately, if you, if you work for Murdoch, then you don't really believe in anything apart from Murdoch's politics, you know. And so, you know, like fucking about on Twitter. I mean. He's a, if you don't really believe him very much, as you know, trolls don't. Yeah. Like it's much easier to wind people up. Do you and think, I think? Do you think that the Times is an elaborate trolling of of British public life? I mean, I, I think it is, but I also I think in a way, what 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 people what what you're doing with that statement is you're taking a particular type of sort of reactionary effects and style, which is now you know, represented by trolls and so and, and saying, oh, the, the Times is like that and it's become like that. I mean, actually, I think, you know, that's, what's cons- that's what conservatives have been doing for a long time. No, that's what I mean. It's much more it's, identifiable. I think, the, I think it's always sorry. been doing that. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. We've got so a like, look. But, I mean, what I was going to say was that the if you think of something like Harry's Place, I mean, I think we, we talked about this um, a few shows back a, a little bit, um, ab- about that website, which you know, to, hopefully most listeners don't really know about, but it, they they were doing like online trolling like a long time before this was something which you know people were concerned about or worried about politically within the mainstream. And Aronovich, you know, he wasn't part of that, but he was broadly part of the same sort of you know political movement that sort of pro-war left. And a lot of those guys, a lot of those guys, the the, the, the stars of that kind of um, movement, if you could flatter it by calling itself that, yeah. found their way into these kinds kind of positions. Anyway, we digress massively. Yeah. Back to Aronovitz Gate. Yeah. So what happened was, um, I I tweeted this sort of because um, I was trying to contribute towards the marketplace of ideas. Of course like, you were. You know. Of course you were. Too. Um, and then Aronovitz sort of pops up on Twitter and then asked me quite pointedly, uh, and then he sort of pointed out that Twitter is a publisher, and so he was basically saying that he would, he would sue me, um, if threatening to sue me, saying, would I clarify that I was not in fact calling him a dinner party racist? And we, so we had a short exchange like that, um, at which point I obviously said that I wasn't calling him a dinner party racist. And, and then I think, so the next day, he then mentioned me in his column in The Times, because he was sort of, he'd, he'd obviously spent a day on Twitter 
and decided to turn this into a column, which was basically about, well, every other, the same as every other column he writes, which is like the intolerant left are trying to shut down um, debate. And because essentially they had this like massive authoritarian impulse, which was just obviously like the whole thing was like completely bizarre. I mean, he, he said that I libeled him in, in the column and he also obviously was threatening to sue me on Twitter. But, you know, the weird thing about it was that he obviously he's posturing as a, you know, champion of free speech, but he was quite willing to just go around threatening to sue people, which is just I mean, maybe maybe I'm missing something and there isn't a contradiction there. But I just feel like that there, there, there is <laughs> and, um, that, that, you know, either you believe in free speech and or or you're actually happy to throw around threats of libel. What's your take on this matter? That's interesting. I mean, I I think that, um, I mean, as a you know, as a publisher, the, the British Libel laws were an absolute fucking nightmare. Um, like saying anything at all about someone who's rich and powerful was like was massive risk um, because the libel laws are so draconian. Um, I mean, uh, I mean, we could we could talk about that for a while. Uh, I think like. There's no. I don't think there's a necessary contradiction between being in favour of freedom of speech and wanting to protect your personal representation. Uh, reputation. I think yeah. the the problem, and you know, I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't race to take legal recourse, partly because I haven't got any money and um, uh, I'm not really I didn't, wouldn't really know how to go about it. But but I think what was what was peculiar about um, Ar- Aronovich's behaviour. Un, you know, sorry, uh, unusually peculiar, if you like, um, was that there's nothing that nothing you did was implying that he was a Tinder party racist, right? It was it was like it seemed like his reading of it was like was a sort was in a way a massive sort of disclosure about what he thought he was like. Why did he think it was referring to him? Yeah, I mean, it was kind of a bit strange because, uh, as I understand it, and I could have got the wrong, wrong end of the stick, he was, he, he said, it's like debating against the motion, right? Um, so, but that's neither here nor like you, you, what you were saying was this is a much more pressing debate. Yeah, let's let's have that debate, and and using those pictures was a way of was satirizing their the terms of their debate, right? Yeah, quite. That's, I mean, but. It, in it his head, it was immediately a dig. It must have been a dig at him. Yeah. Well, is... I think I think it's obvious why he took it that way. You know, because he because he is one of the sort of uh, you know he's a he's a journalist and he lives in London and he's very affluent and he obviously goes to a lot of dinner parties. So. Well, maybe. <laughs> like, yeah, maybe it's maybe it's a dinner party. Thing. It, it makes it makes perfect sense. I think that he would be like, yeah, this is this is obviously a dig at me. Um, I mean, the, the point I was actually trying to make, um, and I don't know whether he's a dinner party racist or not, I would certainly never imply that publicly, but the point I was really trying to make was that the the, the way that these debates have been set up, um, particularly actually by Matthew Goodwin, that's, I mean, I have political issues with David Aronovich, like, which are not so much to do with this stuff. Um, they're more to do with his um, position on Islam and, uh, and on um, the war on terror. But it was actually, if anything, was more of a dig at Matthew Goodwin and his assumption that 
racism is a problem of you know social attitudes amongst sort of marginal constituencies whilst ignoring racism at the heart of the British establishment that's the actual point I was trying to make um now is that directed towards anyone specifically I mean yeah I mean obviously it is in some degree I mean I think it, it touches on this sort of problem really that it it's it's much more it's and I I'm, I've mentioned this earlier actually it's it's seen as being much more scandalous to claim that someone or something is racist rather than to, to, to say something that's racist. You know, like, to be racist is seen as a, an important contribution to the, to political debate or as being, right. you know, a, a, brave, strand of a brave form of public yeah. speech. But to, to claim that anything, um, you know, near the heart of the British power structure itself has racist consequence or is in racist, racist intent or yeah. some combination of the two... It's this huge sort of taboo, yeah. and it doesn't matter how much evidence there is for it. You know, so, I mean, I, I mean, this is really, I think, is the, is the heart of the problem. The, the, the British establishment, and I'd include in this, you know, the dinner party racism, are comfortable with the idea that the British, large sections of the British public hold bigoted views about people. But, um, yeah, which is more than true comfortable. Of, yeah, actually almost kind of like welcoming yeah, it. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's not just there. That, that, that actually makes people, I think, in that kind of social milieu, actually quite comforted by their own position in society. Um, what I think is probably more unsettling for them is the idea that they are accomplices or have some sort of complicity right. in, in racist in, projects. In, in, yeah. yeah, in racist projects, which includes, of course, like you know, st um, state policy around immigration and war. I invade places all the time, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, and, and that's that for me, like, is the big problem with racism. And I think, uh, yeah, so so when you... But, I mean, the, fr the furore out of which that came, which was, like, this debate about, you know, is diversity a threat to Western civilization? I mean, Jesus Christ, we, you know, obviously you wrote a book on the enlightenment and we could do a whole show on like the whole, the assumptions that are built into that debate. Yeah. And I think the participants anyway said, you know, this was terrible framing and they sort of backed down. I mean, but, they, cha um, they changed the title, didn't they? Like within hours. Yeah, they pressure. did. Yeah. Um, um, cause there was, there was such a big, um, kickback against it. But I mean, anyway, so, um, well, I mean, anyway, that's the Ron Ronovich gate. So I'm, I'm now part of the, um, yeah, times, uh, well, British Establishment Paper Record. They did actually mention my BBC book, which was nice. They, well, you're part of their bestiary of intolerant left-wing intellectuals. <laughs> yeah, that's right. They'll wheel the, you out as a scare figure. The authoritarian... The, actually, what what they call the left, these people, is the regressive left. So right. I think they're the progressive left, and then there's everyone else, and they're the regressive left. So, so we um, can look forward to put, like pictures of you manhandling Roger Scruton in cartoons and things like that. And <laughs> be, he'll become he'll become a caricature figure. That was the latest thing, isn't it? Today, like um, he's he's uh, made the news. Oh Christ! Was, hasn't he just come? Up, didn't he say? So? I mean, sorry. I, 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 I know, like we shouldn't do podcasts. <laughs> I'm not glued up on what's happening. <laughs> hasn't, hasn't he just said something like unbelievably anti-Semitic as well? Oh yeah, no. He's like, there's all sort like stuff going on with him. It's amazing. 
Um, it's just like extraordinary. It's, like, how, um, how are they able to get away with this stuff? It's, it is. Uh, it's very. But I. But just going back quickly to the issue of, um, uh, like, as you say, like willing to acknowledge reservoirs of racist sentiment in the wider public, um, but entirely refusing to engage in any, however, kind of reason critique of, of the state and the sort of higher echelons of society as having sort of um, a racist agenda or racist ideology. The BBC says that it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't ignore or leave uncovered any significant strand of opinion. And there are an awful lot of people in Britain who would look at the fact that we keep invading countries and killing everybody and think, this is, like, this is fucking way out of order. And it doesn't get a fraction of the coverage um, that seems to be given to the sort of UKIP strand of opinion. Yeah, um, no, I, I mean, I've, I've long thought this, you know, that the, I mean, if, you, if you're editing something, like, you, you need to s- select things which you feel you're not covering, things that, 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 you know, get drawn to your attention. And it's just very clear that there, there are elements which, there's a lot of things that the BBC doesn't, doesn't cover, but they, it's those kinds of things which are strategically more, whether it's a conscious thing or not, um more able to deviate towards is those kind of populist yeah, right-wing yeah. attitudes on immigration. You know, they don't, tu- they don't really touch on any um, interest in society. If it, All they're doing is breaking taboos, which are themselves the result of liberal and radical left anti-racist movements of the last three decades. You know, so it's, it's obviously like a, a very convenient position to take. Right. It's, but, a, it's a way of being brave without cost, right? Exactly, yeah, that's more eloquently put what I was just saying. Um, I think go on. we were going to talk about um, Dr. Bastano and Poppygate, weren't we? We were, we were. Um, and we should clarify, um, just before we move on from Scruton, um, he wrote some things about, um, uh, in, in Hungary, I think, which I think are extremely questionable. Whether they qualify as being outright anti-Semitic uh, is something I shall leave for keener legal minds than us. Um, but let's move yeah, on. Yeah, I should probably clarify as well that I'm not calling him an anti-Semitic. No, no but indeed. I did, I did hear some worrying think, comments that he had made about um, the activities of Soros in Hungary. Exactly. So, and I think okay. his comments... We'll, we'll investigate. His, his comments were, in given the current context, um, extremely questionable. Um, and sit very uneasily with his proposed role as a a government advisor. Um, But let's move on to um, um, the final, as you say, say, still live controversy, um, which is Poppygate. Yeah. Well, every year, like, there's obviously this huge excitement around... Remembrance Sunday and um, poppies, and then usually they come with, you know, various sorts of, con- you know, uh, manufactured controversies. And in this case, it's, one of them seems to centre around friend of the show, Aaron Bastani, who's the founder of Navarra Media. Who he's, I mean, as far he he's done a show. He's got this new show that he does. <clears throat> I think. It's it's called like the Pistani Factor, I think, and it, you know it's it's, it's a one man show, and they have got a few things going on at Navarra Media that they put out as podcasts, 
And in this particular one, he started talking about the amount of veterans who were homeless in the UK, which is over 30,000, and the amount of resources that were spent on buying poppies and, you know, where that money went through the British Legion, the the basis on which the British Legion was founded and the rest of it. I mean, the the thrust of his kind of argument, because I, I listened to it, like the whole show, was basically that the... Um, the, the, the really the if we if we cared about veterans if the the purpose of Remembrance Sunday um, was in in fact to care for members of the armed forces then we should do something about the armed forces who are homeless and then there were various comments he made about the British Legion like two of which were I think towards the end of the show I think he he says oh they're racist and then sort of says they're white nationalists in a almost in a sort of um, scare quotes kind of voice. And then, of course, it became this um, story that was circulated first around Twitter, as far as I can tell, and then appeared in The Sun and The Independent and a few other publications, and the deputy leader of the Labour Party felt he should comment on it. So it's just another of these, I mean, just so many of these kind of, I mean, I don't want to say they're phony, because it sort of implies that people's sentiments are insincere, and, you know, I don't really know whether people feel genuinely upset about these things, but you just get more and more of these sort of cycles. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? I mean, for, like my experience with journalists is that they're not sincere about anything. They couldn't give a tuckney cuss about anything. Um, so the idea that they really care about, like... Oh, Dan, I don't think that some journalists care about anything, obviously. Right. I meant people getting pissed off on Twitter. Well, that, right, and it does shade into people, I think, you know, there, are, there is genuine outrage there. Um, and it's a, there's a spectrum of, of um, cynical indifference that goes into, um, yeah, genuine outrage. You're right. Anyway, sorry, that's a bit of a, but yeah. No, I, no, it's fine. I mean, I think I think it's. it's I mean, I think it's important. To, I suppose it's important to bear in mind how how utterly performative outrage um, that appears in the media usually is. Um, yeah, and I, I think to an extent, like. You know, like the the left does this as well. Is like, you know, if if something seems like very, you know, slightly unpleasant or objectionable, and <clears throat> there's sort of a, you know, political pylon going on that's politically convenient, then you know, people obviously will will, will jump on board with that. Now, and it doesn't it doesn't mean that you don't object to the sentiment and that it's completely insincere. Right. But obviously, there's a relationship between your political feelings, your political interests and political opportunities and the rest of it. And I think in the case of a Sun journalist, you know, it's just like utter cynicism, you know, like the the, the depths with which those people go to, like, I think are quite unusual for human beings. But the the, um, sort of, so, you know, I don't want to call it, yeah, sort of, it's definitely performative in some sense. I don't think it's like, confected outrage because like people generally do care a lot about um you know remembrance sunday and the identity of the the troops and the rest of it but i just think like stuff like this where essentially like the, the thrust of the criticism was that Aaron bastani shouldn't be criticizing the royal british legion because it does good work as a charity but the the basis of what he was talking about really was about the defunding of the state in, in terms of its service capacity. I mean, that was sort of the thrust of it, um, combined with the rise in homelessness and really the sort of hypocrisy around the idea of 
claiming to care about something without actually supporting any sort of significant social action. And I think, you know, his sort of style is kind of provocative and that's kind of, you know, that's how that's how he does these shows and, and this politics. But at the same time, like, you know, if you so if you listen to the whole show, it's very clear that's the nature of the argument. But like we've already seen, and it's sort of, you know, I think it comes back to the Times in a way, although the Times didn't jump on board with this, but it's kind of the greedoization of the British media, really. It's the sort of, um, you know, that it's just completely accepted when it comes to the left, that you're allowed to sort of take things slightly out of context, twist them in a certain way, sort of feign outrage about it, and then, you know, tr try and push back. And the weird thing was, it was sort of implied that in some way, you know, Aaron Bastani... Um, because he's a Corbyn supporter, therefore this is at the door of the leadership office, you know, as if well, anyone's... Right. So, so what's going on partly, I think, is, is an attempt to sort of throw shade at the, at the Labour leadership. It's, as you say, it's sort of a way of, of discrediting um, the, the sort of the, quote, far left in the eyes of sort of civilians. Yeah. Um, and it's also an attempt to pick off a, you know, a Corbyn, Corbyn sort of speaker, if you like, um, yeah. in in the mainstream. I mean, you know, Aaron is one of these people who can go on Sky News or can go on the BBC and make make a case for um, a left politics. Yeah. Um, and frankly, there aren't there aren't endless numbers of people who are who have the experience and the um, confidence, confidence and inclination, so on, to do that. So. When when something like this crops up, I think there is there's an attempt to sort of knock him off the board. Um, mm. As you know, periodically there are attempts to knock Owen Jones off the board as well. Often, yeah, I wouldn't say it was periodic. It's more sort of relentless. Well, there's a certain there's a certainly a permanent sort of um, war of attrition. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't want to use World War One metaphors in a tasteless way, um, but it is. Well, that's how we started the show. So. The right are constantly going off over the top, trying to storm. <laughs> Owen Jones's positions, um, but um, yeah, so you're right. I mean, a lot a lot of this seems to be um, confected outrage. There is a kind of there is a growing culture war over remembrance, mm. um, and I think you know there is a. I mean, I, some of the points that um, were being raised about uh, the conduct of these big charities is a, is a sort of overdue conversation. Um, yeah, without a doubt. I mean, I think, you know, the thing is, like, it's one of these things where, which frustrates me, where, like, people will be like, okay, oh, oh so you're against the charity, so you're against helping people. And it's like, well, no, obviously not. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. You know, that, that was very clear from the beginning that, um, that, that that's precisely the opposite of what the argument yeah, is. Yeah, he wants but, them to help them more effectively, right? Yeah, and, exactly. But it's, it's just like... It seems like, uh, you know, this is actually something that Owen Jones, like, constantly complains about, while people constantly complain about him, which is that, like, there just seems to be, when it comes to the left, just a complete inability to to report or engage, like, it, with any sort of good faith um, no, no. Uh, approach or, or, or any kind of, like, professional seriousness, you know. And, and I just think, you, you know, like, something like this is just sort of illustrative of... The combination of sort of you know misinterpretation and moral blackmail and kind of um, 
you know, the, the same sort of um, sort of culture that, to an extent, you get on Twitter, but with you know, with a platform of like the national media, which you know, people like to tell themselves, of course, that these are waning right. um, organisations, and they are. But yeah. I mean, you know, compared to like what even someone like Aaron, who I think has quite a large following on Twitter, have. You know, there's there's not really any any comparison there in terms of the sort of weight and pressure they can bring down on people. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you know, it is a for the, the the Sun, and I think you know a lot of these other media organisations similarly. You know, they they are they're worse than a form of organised bullying. Yeah. I mean, pre Leveson is that's how people tend to regard them. You know, yeah. is like um you know it's, it's sort of bullying and lying sort of organizations but they're much worse than that you know yeah. it's just kind of extraordinary that this is still going on you know i mean uh, how long are we after leveson now but the, you know murdoch's um you know um gangsters are still allowed to sort of um roam the public sphere like this it just yeah. seems kind of bizarre really um this brings, but i don't know this brings us briefly back to aronovich aronovich wrote a very bad book about conspiracy theories called voodoo histories and at the end of the book he goes through what he just does this really sort of shoddy kind of canter through the history of conspiracy theory and at the end of it he says he says conspiracies are not important right and he writes this literally when he's working in the same office as a massive criminal conspiracy at news international to bug (laughs) phones illegally right He's sitting in the same fucking canteen as all these crooks at the news of the world <laughs> who are bugging and like going through people's bins. It's not happening. Blackmailing <laughs> politicians. Like, we do not know the half of what the fuck was going on, right? We don't know the half the of thing what is, was going The other thing is, it's like the absolute classic stuff of conspiracy because you've got like a combination of like... You know the bent coppers, yeah. the press, like senior politicians, bribery, moral blackmail. You know, it's just like and it's just every, running every out. single sort of like um, you know um, unimaginative component of um, an elite conspiracy, which would look really hackneyed on you know yeah. Uh, yeah. ITV. Yeah, was going on literally where he was working, <laughs> and he was like conspiracies on like he, like the whole thesis of his book was like. Oh yeah, the conspiracies don't really happen, and when they do, you they don't really Tim matter. Tim <laughs> go searching for conspiracies. It's like, how could you miss this one? And it's like the point, of course, is his job is to miss what's going on, right? Yeah, his and job he's good is, at it. is to not see, and he do- and he really doesn't see. On the issue of um, charities, like in a functioning media system, I think we would have a serious debate about what would qualify an institution for charitable status, right? And one of the things that would qualify them, surely, would be that they are transparent and understood by the people who give them money. Mm. And charities at the moment are a phenomenal fucking racket, right? If anyone ever wants to give me a field and a couple of, like, exhausted donkeys, I will make fortunes out of running a donkey sanctuary, because people are really, like, they really care about donkeys, right? They want to help them. And they give them money, hand over fist, right? Across the piece, the charitable sector is full of people on really good salaries who are completely unaccountable to anyone apart from the Charity Commission, which does fuck all, as far as I can tell. 
So I feel like you're on The Apprentice now, trying to pitch. Um... Well, right. So, but like big charities, it seems to me, they need to be opened up to, and this goes for like you know all the like all the real biggies like the RSPCA and all, all the like the RSPB and all these motherfuckers. Like, get the fucking punters in on the in on the governance and find out what the fuck they're doing with the money. Do you know not... what, Dan? Like, um, we should wrap things up, but I, th- I think there's a really interesting question here around. I mean, I hate the word governance, but like, because we, we've talked a lot about, you know, how could the media systems be different? And I think a lot of that can apply the sort of, um, you know, structural and organizational change can, can apply to these charities as well, because you have a funding base there that comes from, you know, supporters, in some cases, you know, like amnesty and membership, but then the governance structure is sort of the great and the good, you know, of British society. So people drawn from the corporate sector and the establishment. And in that sense, it's similar to the, the you know, the, the border governors of the BBC yeah, yeah. as it used to be. But now, you know, as the BBC's moved towards the, you know, more sort of um, private sector type model of governance, so the charities as well. So you, you have this whole first sector, which is, you know, funded, I suppose, you know, by the public broadly, but yeah. which is locked down by members of, um, you know, the, the establishment and that kind of elite that moves fairly comfortably between the corporate world and the world of art and culture and the third sector and the rest of it. So I do think it's a very interesting question. You know, actually, what well, now we have certain technological innovations, like, and obviously we have, you know, various forms like crowdfunding, how might we reimagine um, the third sector? And also, what would its relationship be with the state? You know, if we were going to have a sort of decentralised state system, I think a lot of the conversations that we have around media reform could have a, a wider application to the charitable sector. And the other thing I think that's interesting to bring things back to sort of policy discussion is the relationship between these charities in terms of the work they do and the need that they have for publicity um, and and the media structures as they currently exist. And this is something that we've talked about a little bit before. But um, anyway, maybe um, a discussion for another show would be how would we democratise and radically reform the third sector? Well, I th- yeah, I think it's, like, as you say, there are sort of similarities in the way that the charity sector protects itself from uh, I- I- inquiry similarities in the way that the BBC does it. it just says you know what we're doing is so good and we're so ace that if you criticise us in any way you're like a bad person mm. because our mission is so noble and it's like yeah okay your mission's noble but what, what the f- how the fuck are you going about it because your chief executive is paid like 150 grand or whatever it is and it's like is that the best use of your resources and yeah, and I think there's a sort of realism there, isn't there, that that comes in with coming in operating with very sort of austere financial circumstances, but also having been used to these kinds of situations where you have, you know, that board of trustees and the highly paid executive and it mimicking the, you know, uh, governance structures of the corporate sector. So, I mean, the, the other thing I think is that you know, the sector's full of people who were potentially, you know, very committed to a different type of society, but have been diverted into a sort of organisational realism around these forms. So it's, I don't know, I think I think it's a very 
it's an open question, but it's a really interesting one, I think, as to if you were going to start from scratch, like how would you organise these kinds of organisations? Like what sessions would be brought into like state provision and what would the role for the like you know voluntary organizations be yeah um, yeah if we if we had a more socialist society yeah and i think i know that i've made some sort of preliminary sort of remarks on this in my piece on constitutional reform because you know there is a sense that the, the the sort of charitable sector reflects as you say the corporate sector it also reflects and and gains legitimacy from its relationship with the state um Particularly the role of the royal family as sort of patrons of charities. Yeah, totally. Interesting. And, as you and like, you know, so many like weird aristocrats, you know. Well, right. I remember, you know, like I'd meet a lot of like, like aristos who were like involved in like really big charities. And you're kind of like, well, how much are you getting for that then? Because these fuckers don't work for free, you know. And I think a lot of people would be quite surprised if they found out that that they that one of the things these charities were doing and amongst their good works was providing very wealthy people with like very handy extra income and it's like Indeed. what what's that about so as you say a different kind of state implies a different kind of civil society um we don't need to necessarily go to a sort of an idea of monolithic state provision um there may be there may be a kind of role maybe important role for sort of various kinds of voluntary um endeavor but as you say, it would take place in a, in a, in, this, in the context of a different kind of state, um, and one would hope that these 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 uh, these institutions in civil society would reflect an egalitarian ethos and a democratic set of structures in the state itself. Um, but we've gone way off topic. But we have spent a lot of our time uh, talking about the media and the politics and the politics of the media. So I think. Well, this it's is, on brand. I think this is, can feel that they've got their hours worth of content. Um, so I think it's about time we wrapped it up. Indeed. Um, now, as you say, we've got a couple of guests lined up. Um, we're going to go back to talking to figures outside of the media democracy. Yeah, we, we apologise. We're going to have to dilute um, the, the dream team in the next <laughs> the, few weeks. They're going to let we'll allow a little bit of daylight in on the magic. Um, but um, we will uh, we'll be back very soon. So thanks for joining us. Tom, do you want to say goodbye? Or you just... um, <laughs> <laughs> goodbye, everyone. <laughs>